Hello, Intellectonauts. Earlier today, I had an exploratory stroll with Michael Millerman. Michael is a doctor in political science, and he received his PhD recently from the University of Toronto, where he studied political theory. He is one of the world's leading experts on Alexander Dugan and has translated many of Dugan's writings into English. I discovered Dugan sometime this past summer and was researching a bit on him, mainly his influence on the geopolitical world scene. I don't really know much about Dugan, so this conversation was an opportunity um, for me to learn more, and I believe it provided an excellent 101 on Dugan's thought. I really enjoyed this conversation, and it dawned on me how nuanced Dugan's thought really is. And this idea of the dark logos, maybe it's just my uh, superficial attraction to how cool it sounds, but there's something about it that I'm going to have to think about further. So while I noodle on the, the dark logos, uh, enjoy this exploration I had with Michael Millerman. This is a club for lovers of Sophia, cartographers of the Noosphere, anthropologists of memeplexes, addicts of insight porn, and rebels full of viewquakes. We are not idealists or realists, theists or atheists, modernists or postmodernists, liberals or conservatives, progressivists or reactionaries. We may be a mix of all of these things, but first and foremost, we are intellectual explorers. Today, we are going on an exploratory stroll with Michael Millerman. I'm now going to anchor myself in an exploratory mindset via spoken affirmation. I, Peter, will engage in this dialogue with the spirit of exploration. My intention is not to agree or disagree, but to be a performative agnostic and understand my interlocutor's map of reality and possibly explore new territory together and joyfully anticipate what we might discover. That being said, Michael, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. So... You're uh, one of the world's leading experts on Alexander Dugan. And uh, Big Think released an article a while ago calling him the most dangerous philosopher in the world. And um, when you and I spoke last, we were talking about the importance of you know, having a philosophical sandbox and sandboxing all sorts of ideas, even uh, dangerous ideas. So I want my first question is, Assuming if Dugan's ideas are dangerous, what's what's the importance of philosophically sandboxing potentially dangerous ideas? Well, it's important to think through the issues that matter to us. And if we're thinking about political life or human life, that means thinking beyond the boundaries of what seems to us acceptable, customary, 
orthodox in the sense of being commonly regarded as um, the legitimate boundaries or confines of the issue. And you can define in a way dangerous thought as all thought that calls a constraining limitation into question because it puts the familiar coordinates in, into danger. There's a more direct sense of a danger where you say you're in some sort of physical danger. But I don't think that when people refer to, I don't think the first thing that people mean when they call a thinker dangerous is that he's putting physical existence into question. Although it may be that a consequence of the new models is, for example, uh, has a geopolitical aspect and therefore a military aspect and therefore the possibility of physical confrontation and death. The primary reason people call ideas dangerous, I think, is because they call into question one's basic coordinate system. In politics, that can be our definition of what it is to be human, our axioms about what matters to us most uh, in our political philosophy, whether it's human rights or human dignity, whether it's individualism. Um, if they're, and the more compelling, well, you can say two things about this. The more compelling a thinker's arguments are, the more dangerous that thinker is because he has the possibility of, uh, of taking people away from one path and leading them onto another one, but also the more persuasive. So it can be that the arguments are compelling on their own, or it can also be that the person is a good rhetorician, a charismatic and persuasive leader, and is dangerous in the sense that even though the arguments are uh, misleading, they may mislead you down a dangerous path. So this whole theme of dangerous thoughts, dangerous ideas, and a dangerous thinker is very multi-dimensional. It's multifaceted. We have to remember. So, all right, if someone looks up Alexander Dugan and sees a picture of him standing with a rocket launcher and uh, talking to Ahmadinejad <laughs> and talking about the end of the world, they'll say, all right, he's a dangerous thinker because he wants to usher in the apocalypse. But we shouldn't forget that Socrates was regarded as a dangerous thinker. Right, he was right. regarded as a corrupter of the youth. And he was put to death by a jury of his, let's call them peers, even though if they voted the way they did, they're far from being his peers in the higher sense. So all philosophical thought is dangerous to the extent to which it goes past the limitations that define a political community, I would say. Mm -hmm. And um, specifically Dugan, why do you think people claim that he is a dangerous thinker? They claim he's a dangerous thinker because there are stories of his influence on Putin and on the Kremlin. So if he had no influence, if there were no grounds on which to think that he had any influence whatsoever, if there were no stories of the Russian government having acted in his defense when he was uh, expelled from Ukraine for his anti-Ukrainian comments, if there was no evidence of any connections that he had with party ideologues, if there was no plausible um, mapping between his theories of multipolarity and Russian national policy statements on multipolarity, then you might think he's a harmless thinker, no matter how dangerous the ideas seem to be. But the fact that his ideas are coherently and consistently anti-liberal, so therefore they pose on a theoretical level a threat to uh, the deepest held commitments of the Western world, let's say, and added to that, the additional fact that he has some sort of political influence, whether it's indirectly by um, 
influencing p- party platforms, like he's said to have done with the Communist Party. Um, I mean, the new Communist Party of the Russian Federation by bringing in some traditionalist themes there. Or as I say, with the doctrine of multipolarity, when you combine the dangerous ideas with some proximity to political power and political influence, then you can see some of the reasons why people think of him as dangerous. But it's also that he he does combine in his person functions that at times are distributed across numerous people. You can imagine a scenario, Plato wrote about it, and we've encountered it in the history of political thought uh, more than once, where you have a scribbling madman generating the ideas and somebody else playing the role of implementer or of uh, propagandizer, ideologue, or the embodiment to some extent of those ideas. Well, Dugan embodies all of these functions and more in himself. He generates the ideas, but then he also, he may generate them philosophically, but he also propagates them uh, ideologically and activistically. He does so knowingly and with a theory of his own self-activity. So those are some of the reasons I would say he's dangerous. He combines thinking with activism. He combines theoretical prowess with proximity to political power. And he is um, anti-liberal, whereas Western world identifies itself to a certain extent with uh, as his enemy and therefore him as uh, the West's enemy. Right, right. And... um... I think it was your first video in your your Millerman talk series that you give uh, three reasons why it's important to know uh, Dugan's ideas. Uh, if you recall those, could you um, go over them? I probably said something along the lines that if we declare somebody to be our enemy, so we just say this person is our enemy, then I would say it's incumbent upon us to know our enemy. We benefit from a knowledge of our enemy's coordinate system. We benefit from a knowledge of their playbook. That seems to me self-evident. It may not be. Um, I probably gave the analogy there that if you're going to be playing uh, a chess match with somebody and you have access to that person's strategies and tactics and past games and basically everything you can learn about them and about how they encounter their opponents it seems like it would be a dereliction of duty not to access that material. So the first reason is because you should know, uh, you should know your enemy. Mm. I also think that you can learn from your enemy without giving up your commitments. So here's an example of that. A software company or some company that uses, that relies on computer technology may hire hackers to try to hack its systems not because it wants to undermine its own systems, but because the exposure of flaws in its systems can help it to reinforce or fortify those systems. Mm. So you want to know your enemy because you want to be well prepared to uh, tango, to wrestle, to do whatever, or to destroy the enemy. You also want to learn from your enemy about your own weaknesses, but we can't lose from sight the noble and legitimate defensible motivation of wanting to learn from your enemy something that transcends the relationship between friend and enemy something that the the declared enemy may have learned about the truth of some matter and if we i put that under the umbrella of a liberal education a liberal education an education that frees one from uh, opinion and liberates one towards knowledge let's say or that frees the mind from constraints and brings it into the light of the truth 
cannot rest content with the idea that all of the truth is on its side. It must be willing to find the truth wherever it lies. And often that'll be with, with friends, with neutrals, with enemies. It may be where it's least expected, where it's most expected. But there's more between heaven and earth than lies in our philosophy. And that means that sometimes we have to go consider the philosophy or the ideology or the thought systems of others. So I think that the study of Dugan is defensible on all of those grounds, whether it's a policymaker trying to understand Russia as a geopolitical enemy, whether it's somebody who wants to fortify our systems against their ideological, technological, institutional, and moral weaknesses, or whether it's somebody who's driven by a desire to have a more complete understanding of the human condition. I don't see what would take Dugan off the table for any one of those uh, aims. Right, right. I really like that. And if I, I were to rephrase it, like the first one is, you know, the Sung Soom's know yourself, know your enemy, win a thousand battles. Uh, the second one is sort of like the devil's advocate, stress test your own idea. And then the 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 third one reminds me of uh, Ken Wilber's quote, you know, nobody's smart enough to be 100% wrong, right? And you can learn something from everyone. Um, and I, I think you said this in one of your videos is that, you know, liberal arts is the art that liberates your mind. Um, so yeah, I think, um, those are th three very valid reasons. Uh, <clears throat> just before we get into, cause I really want to do a deep dive into, uh, uh, Dugan's thought, but before we do that, just as one remaining question regarding the, the sandbox, um, so let's say we want to look at different ideas, whether it's Dugan or ISIS or neo-Nazis. Um, in order to like philosophically sandbox an idea and have that distance, it, it's really a skill set. You know, it, it's like an, an art form, a skill set. Um, maybe it requires a certain temperament or level of intelligence. Uh, and just from my experience, and this is not a judgment, a value judgment, but a lot of people don't have the desire for the examined life. So if you release these ideas into the, you know, the, the noosphere um, or the localized noosphere, uh, it can infect people in, in ways, uh, in, in, let's say, unhelpful ways. Or that's at least an, a counter argument to this. And, and do you think there's any merit to that or what's your thoughts in, in, that, in that argument? I do think there's merit to it, but we have to see exactly where the merit lies. If we sandbox or in entertain certain ideas to see what we can learn from them, as I say, about ourselves and about our interlocutors and our partners, uh, friends and enemies, if we entertain those ideas and they risk spilling out to people who don't have the approximate or the appropriate distance from them, yes, there is some risk of presenting, let's say you give the devil his hearing, but you don't want to give him such a such a fair hearing that people turn to him rather than to the alternative so to speak mm -hmm. but there but we have to there are a lot of different elements to this picture i think so for example where is the most appropriate place to entertain such ideas i don't say that every mass media channel every newspaper should be shouting it from the rooftops hey, let's all give neo-Nazism a serious hearing. Everybody stop what you're doing and let's now give um, child molestation a serious hearing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, that's not at all naturally what I'm advocating. But 
there are places where it makes sense to give things a fair hearing. A think tank, for example, seems like a place where you would want to entertain a broad range of ideas. That's an institutionally defined place. Now, there are think tanks whose job it is to crank out policy given a certain set of axioms. But nevertheless, a think tank seems like a place where you may play with a variety of axiom sets. The university, not completely, not everywhere and in every department, not at all times, but at some, po some pockets of the university at some time seem like appropriate places to be entertaining a range of ideas about politics, human life, morality, and all the rest of it that go beyond our orthodoxies. Now, for example, a first-year course on political science, in my view, should have some element of civic education built into it before students learn about all of the alternatives in a sandbox style manner, they should know something about the, our own system, our own institutions, our own ideas, the reasons for their existence, and so on. So a solid grounding in our own system as preparation for the consideration of alternatives. On the other hand, a, a fourth-year course or a graduate program in political science that begins to introduce um, ideas that now, unfortunately, I would say are introduced at the first year level, alternatives to liberalism, um, even before we have a solid under understanding of our own traditions. Well, at the fourth year level or graduate level, there should now be a willingness to engage not only with Mill and Marx, but also with Heidegger and Nietzsche as thinkers of the right, not only with um, the tolerable others that we like because they remind us of our liberal guilt, but also the other others like Russian conservatives and um, Islamic fundamentalists. In other words, once we have now found a place where we, where it makes sense to consider other ideas, which to repeat, I don't think it makes sense to do everywhere and at all times, but there are many pockets, institutional pockets where this type of behavior is expected and makes perfect sense. Once we do that, then we should do it. It may come with disclaimers. Don't get, you know, if a, uh, I do think professors, for example, owe to their young, impressionable students a word of caution that the ideas they're about to present may um, excite them, may very much infect them or take them over. They're, they may fall in love with these um, anti-liberal ideas or whatever they happen to be. And that type of warning would not be meant to, how would you say, to discredit the ideas. But there is some moral obligation or responsibility a professor has to his students, at least to let them know that they're getting into this domain where they may want to practice a little bit of distance from the consideration of the ideas to falling under the spell of those ideas. But no professor or educator in this higher sense has it in their power to keep a student from falling under the spell of an idea that is fascinating and that is that grabs one by by the heart by the soul sometimes by the throat so yes there's a responsibility but it's not perfectly within the control of the educator there should be some acknowledgement of the risks but with no watering down of the content and with no trying to keep students uh, who entertain those risks from the rewards of whatever they might happen to to discover there's just an uncertainty and an unpredictability to the outcome, but the cost of not engaging in the experiment is much higher than the cost of not conducting it. 
I mean, like, sorry, the cost of not doing the experiment is much higher than one or two people get get red pilled by Nietzsche. Okay, what are you going to do? Stop teaching him? Stop exposing students to the potential of a critique of tr traditional morality? What's needed is professors who can do that sandboxing in a way that understands what students desire, why they are fascinated by ideas, and that can basically responsibly take them through that, not paternalistically, but responsibly. So there are too many professors who either say, we're not going to teach, we won't even read Heidegger because students are going to become Nazis. I'm sorry, that those people with that type of attitude have no place at the university or in any company of, of uh, educated, intelligent people. So that's my view. There are risks, but they can't be avoided. There are risks to crossing the street as well. But the mind has many streets it has to cross. And it has to do that with its eyes open. Mm, that, was, that was very well put. Okay, so let's let's go into Dugan. Um, and my first question with him, and this might be too much to ask, but you know the whole idea of an elevator pitch, right? Describe what you do in um, in, the, in the the duration of an elevator ride. Could you do your best to describe uh, Dugan as an elevator pitch? His his philosophy. He is a political philosopher, an ideologue, an activist who opposes liberalism politically and philosophically and elaborates an al alternate system of political philosophy to it that is neither left anti-liberalism that we know like the communist um, intellectual tradition, nor right anti-liberalism familiar to us from fascism and its alternatives. Mm. That's I think that would probably be my best effort. So he tries to go beyond left and right opposition to liberalism as communism, and fascism to elaborate some uh, philosophical, political alternative to the dominant political ideology. Great, today. great. Um, and he has something called the, the fourth political theory. Um, could you unpack that a little bit? Yes. The basic idea of the fourth political theory, partly I just um, said, but we can elaborate on it is that the 20th century had um, an ideological, one of the characteristics of the 20th century was an ideological struggle between liberalism and communism and fascism. Liberalism, he calls the first political theory, communism, the second political theory, fascism, the third political theory. And he recognizes that they have their subdivisions and their shades. So he says that by the end of the 20th century, liberalism had emerged victorious. It no longer faced fascist opposition as a systematic and politically relevant political alternative. And with the collapse of the communist world, Fukuyama's end of history thesis, liberalism now stood largely unopposed in the ideological domain. But if you, for any reason, want to oppose a liberal political philosophy, and there are a variety of reasons why countries and individuals want might want to do that, some political, some philosophical, for example. And if it's no longer fitting, if it's no longer appropriate to oppose liberalism, either from the second or third political theories, because they've been refuted both historically and theoretically, then what do you do? If the three political theories exhaust the possibilities, there's, no, there's nothing left to do. You've reached the end of history, the end of the relevant um, options in the domain of ideas about the nature of human and political life. So he assessed that situation and said, um, any reversion to communist 
political theory, like leftist political theory, and any reversion to fascist or fascist-like political theories is going to be totally inadequate philosophically and historically. So the first thing that we do in this situation, therefore, is declare the fourth political theory. By declaring the name, just saying the name, the fourth political theory, in terms of this analysis that I just gave, you now create an intellectual space outside of the of this constraining three ideology model and you can now breathe more freely and begin to see what the fourth political theory must be if it's going to be a systematic philosophically coherent politically relevant alternative to liberalism that's neither communist nor fascist in character and so in his book the fourth political theory the 2012 version that was published in english he starts to say that that's the negative significance, so to speak. That's the rejection of its identification with liberalism, communism, and fascism, the creation of a, you might say sandbox, but the creation of an intellectual space where you can now breathe freely. Well, he also begins to think about what the content, the positive content would be of that theory. And he offers a variety of approaches to that question. So for example, he says, well, one way we might think of the positive content of the fourth political theory is that it's going to contain bits and pieces of liberalism, communism, and fascism. It's going to be a patchwork um, creation of elements of pre-existing political theories. And he doesn't just say that. He gives an example of how that operation would run. So, for example, he says the following. If you see liberalism, communism, and fascism as coherent ideologies, so they contain a variety of aspects and elements, but the, those aspects and elements hang together in some coherent way. He says, we can try to identify some core feature of those ideological systems, remove that core feature from the intellectual structure, and let the other elements of that structure sort of fall to the ground. Now that they've lost their magnetic charge or they've lost the piece that holds them together, they fall to the ground as elements or scraps available for the taking. They are no longer like the body parts of this ideology, they're now disembodied elements that can be put together for something else. So in his book, he says that in communism, he rejects the thesis of um, the linearity of time. So history being uh, unidirectional, a certain notion of time and a certain notion of uh, materialism can be their key features for the communist ideology. So if you reject them, the other pieces of the analysis, for example, the critique of capitalism, remain available, but ideologically uh, have lost their ideological charge. In fascism, he rejects racism, so the element on race and on the superiority of race, but he acknowledges that certain, um, certain thinkers on, in the third, third political theory thought about, ethno, about ethnicity and peoplehood in a way that is non-racial, but could be valuable for a political theory. So he rejects racism, but accepts the concept of the ethnos as relevant. And in liberalism, he rejects the in concept of the individual, but accepts the notion of freedom. So he says that's one approach to the fourth political theory is piece together these ideologically neutralized elements of the other th theories. And he offers a, a variety of other suggestions about what the fourth political theory could be. The deepest of which to use his own words, the deepest foundation for the fourth political theory, his experimental formulation of it in 2012, was that it's going to be based on the philosophy of Martin Heidegger. That's an idea that he developed over the next few years in a series of books. And that's distinct from the approach I just outlined of borrowing elements from the three political theories. They belong to modernity, 
Whereas he believes philosophically a rejection of modernity, which you can accomplish through Heidegger, he thinks, gives a much more solid philosophical ground for the elaboration of an alternative to liberalism and its better known, um, its better known competitors. So could you go into that a little bit about um, his use of Heidegger and Dasein and instead of like focusing on the individual or a collective or something like that? Yes. So what do we take as the key unit of political analysis? We may take, for example, the race, the nation, the country, the class, which is what he says is the key unit of political analysis in communism, a class-based analysis. It can be the state and so on. In liberalism, it's the individual. But he says that Heidegger, in being in time, but in his whole corpus, shows us philosophically that there is a more fundamental X, a, f a more fundamental something um, over which all of these other identities are built as superstructures of some kind. They're acts of interpretation about some more fundamental um, entity or some more fundamental being. And so Heidegger's analysis of ourselves as that more fundamental being circulates to an extent around the notion of Dasein, the analytic of Dasein, as um, that being for whom being is a question, which is distinct from beings in the world, like the things that you see around you. So we're not, a human being is not just a thing in the world, like um, a cup of coffee or again, whatever else you see around you. A human being is of a different, of a different sort, of a different kind. So Heidegger gives that intuition or that um, insight full force of philosophical articulation in a way that relates it to the history of philosophy and to the, to the future of philosophy. And for Dugan, that is just the richest resource for an elaboration of a political philosophy. Because if you take the individual in liberalism, the class in communism, and for example, the race in fascism, so you now have liberalism, communism, fascism represented, he sees those as differing let's say horizontally, those are alternative, al alternate options for your definition of the relevant political unit that are all on the same plane because they all derive, he believes, using Heidegger's analysis, from the axioms of modern philosophy. And Heidegger has this criticism also, surprisingly, in his black notebooks, which a lot of people have the impression of that you look to the black notebooks as a smoking gun for Heidegger's anti-Semitism and Nazism. But in fact, the black notebooks give a very rich philosophical articulation of the of the view that the Nazis were as philosophically misguided as liberals and the communists because of how they interpreted human being. So Heidegger gives us access not to uh, an alternate understanding of humanity that lies on the same horizontal plane. In other words, that shares the same mistaken axioms about about human being and about reason and time and so on. But he takes us a level or two deeper. And in fact, he takes us so many levels deeper, he believes, and Dugan believes and Heidegger believes, that they get to the source of our, self, our range of self-conceptions about what it is to be human. So the beautiful thing about Dugan drawing on Heidegger is that he gets to satisfy simultaneously his uh, very real philosophical urge 
not to operate with mere ideology or some given set of axioms, but to take things down to their deepest um, foundation. And at the same time, to have a political corollary to that philosophical discovery or to that philosophical um, emergence. Hmm. I like that. Yeah, go, go. And yeah. let me just let me just add. So he had, although he began um, to talk about Heidegger, let's say in the fourth political theory in 2012, since then, he wrote in Russian a number of books on Heidegger, one of which has been translated into English. It's called uh, Martin Heidegger, The Philosophy of Another Beginning. It presents an overview of Heidegger's thought in a, in a specific way to emphasize what Dugan thinks is most important um, about Heidegger, changing in a way the way that Western many uh, Western English language scholars think about Heidegger. And his second book, uh, second, third, and fourth books are untranslated, but the second one is called Martin Heidegger, The Possibility of Russian Philosophy, where he uses the coordinates of Heidegger's philosophical system to explain and to do this kind of experimental examination of what of whether there might be something called something distinct about russian uh, people about russian civilization and therefore about russian philosophy as well so they're very good well thought out well executed um works and i hope that before too long at least the second volume gets translated into english but even the first one is a good place to start for people who have who want to go a few steps deeper into uh, Heidegger's into Dugan's mm-hmm. use of Heidegger. So I find that fascinating. Um, and I don't know what you would call it, but sort of the the axiomatic foundation of of each one of these sort of political theories. Where I'll, I'll repeat it again: where liberalism, you have the individual; uh, communism, you have the class; fascism, you have the the race; and this fourth theory, you have the design. Um, so. I just want to return back to liberalism and and why Dugan sees it as being problematic, because as you said, the, or, or Dugan thinks that fascism and, and socialism or communism have been refuted, and you can probably make the evolutionary argument that that's the case as well, because they sort of, you know, died out or lost steam. Um, but you know, liberalism uh, on the surface seems like it's it's going strong right now, so. Could you maybe talk about why Dugan thinks liberalism is so problematic? He has a few reasons coming from a few different uh, levels, so to speak. One reason, I think, is that there were many, let's say, right-leaning Soviet dissidents who, with the collapse of communism and the liberalism of Russia in the 90s, just were not satisfied. That's It's not a model that grows naturally out of the Russian tradition. It's something that they may have experienced as um, a forceful, that many, many of them may have experienced as a forceful and unwanted imposition, as something that robbed them of their most valuable traditions and most the most valuable or cherished elements of their identity and tried to reconfigure everything in terms of some crazy cowboy capitalism and importation of foreign models. So at some basic uh like anti-colonialist um perspective or mentality it may just be a rejection of a foreign import Mm. you know he came he was i think that describes part of the reason that's like the simplest level in a sense but now you go on further and further and further and you say what is liberalism as a set of ideas about about human nature what is liberalism as a set of ideas about what's most valuable and most important in human life what theories of morality did it reject 
as part of its self-constitution. So for anybody who finds the rejected theories appealing, liberalism is going to become more more suspicious. And Dugan may reject some of those elements in the name of uh, a deep religious tradition or a deep, uh, let's say, national or civilizational tradition, deep, deep linguistic tradition, literary tradition, um, a different view of the of the hierarchy of human excellence. But there are different thinkers can reject uh, parts of liberalism for the same reason, but in the name of something else. So Leo Strauss, somebody I have learned a lot from and uh, deeply admire, he was suspicious about modern liberalism because of how how much of classical um, political philosophy, Plato and Aristotle in particular, it rejected in the course of its self-configuration. And if you think that there's something eternally and deeply valuable about uh, Platonic philosophy, then you'd see its, its loss in liberalism as a, a loss for all of humanity. And there's some of that in Dugan also. So one aspect, the imposition of liberalism uh, after the collapse of communism in Russia, experienced as an unwelcome uh, moral invasion. Another one, if you're philosophically inclined towards something like Plato, which Dugan is, and you see liberalism as being hostile towards Platonism, which it is, then that's another element of the threat. But I think that probably the, the deepest reason for him now, just based on my research, he's not answering for himself, I'm answering just based on the research I've done, He's repeatedly stated uh, after his encounter with Heidegger that the deepest criticism of liberalism is its identification of the human being as an individual. Mm. And that, that constraining act, that act that takes this um, broad, uh, how should we put it, the broad experience of, of being a human being and narrows it into the particular interpretation of being an individual is uh, basically a crime against humanity, especially when seen in light of Heidegger's history of philosophy. That's where, for Dugan, this act of interpretation is best seen and best understood. So if somebody today is an anti-liberal, they think that bearded women at Eurovision and transgenderism and all of these types of uh, modern liberal phenomena are objectionable. But they oppose to that something that is not necessarily deeply philosophically sophisticated. Dugan doesn't go all the way with that. He acknowledges the rejection of liberal morality to a certain extent, but wants to ground it in a basic understanding of human being. And he thinks that Heidegger is the key to that basic understanding. So that's, I would say, it's very much multifaceted. And the war against liberalism from Dugan's perspective, even though I just said in its best case, the, the, the true um, battle between heaven and earth comes with our philosophical level, he does allow for uh, the war against liberalism to happen on a variety of planes. That's why, for example, in his online universe and all of the websites that he's connected to, uh, among them, there's a website on, on Platonism and on Neoplatonism, which fights the battle basically at the level of uh, a- angels and demons. But there's also his sites on geopolitics, which will fight it on the geopolitical level, and his other propagandistic sites that fight it at the level of everyday mass media. Um, so he, there's a lot about liberalism that he doesn't mm-hmm. like. And it revolves, I would say, largely around 
the interpretation of what it is to be an individual. Yeah, can we touch on that? Uh, the problematic aspect, or what Dugan thinks is the problematic aspect of being an individual, because like you know, currently a guy like Peterson, he's he's beating on that drum. Right, and he says that if we don't become individuals, uh, then we risk uh, slipping into this collectivist horror show that was that we've seen with uh, Nazism and, and Stalin. Um, so, why do you? Th- why does Dugan think? Uh, if you can kind of expand on that a little bit more, why do you think that's problematic? Well, I have to say a few things. Um, he rejects in some of his writings the split or the dichotomy between the individual and the collective you might think that those are only your two relevant options either you're part of some collective which is has the upper hand on your analysis or you're an individual which has the upper hand on the analysis but in fact he thinks that those types of dichotomies in part like the dichotomy between right and left and even uh, to lapse back into some heideggerian analysis here between subject and object that those types of divisions there's a level at which you can go not just either to one or to the other but beyond both of them and not just arbitrarily beyond them, but in a way that bears some philosophical analysis. So that's the first thing I can say. His rejection of individualism does not automatically imply his collectivism because he's on record explicitly analyzing and rejecting the dichotomy between individualism and collectivism. For example, for those people who want to know the source, uh, there's an English volume called Heidegger in Russia and Eastern Europe. And Dugan's essay in that volume is a good place for his rejection of this division between individualism and collectivism. That's number one. Number two, I'm not an expert on Peterson, far from it, but his willingness to consider um, Jungian archetypes and other things like that complicates his sense of the individual in a way that potentially, I'm not saying it does, but it it merits exploration, potentially brings him in the direction of Dugan's uh, analysis of human being a little bit closer. Because besides Heidegger, Dugan draws on other thinkers, young included, to give a deeper and richer sense of the complexity of human existence. He thinks that if we just take the view that we are uh, calculating beings or rational animals, that we're utility maximizers or any, any of these traditional formulations, that leaves far, far too much unaccounted for. That is a cheap reduction of blossoming complexity of human life into something far too simple and misleading. He does think that the um, definition of the human being as primarily rational has undergone a shift in in recent, a very consistently uh, a logical shift in recent decades because once reason was put at the forefront of um, human identity, it then... So for example, once in the name of reason, you fight against external hierarchies like priests and kings and so on, you're now faced with an internal hierarchy that you must also dethrone. So the dethroning of external leaders or external uh, authorities redounds back on oneself and reason has to become uh, displaced so that you no longer have a vertical structure in the human soul, but something like the rhizome, Mm -hmm. you know, something where everything is equivalent to everything else and Reason does not only take a backseat, but who knows where it goes out the door and disappears altogether. So that uh, deconstruction of our internal hierarchies is, a, is perfectly correlated to the deconstruction of external hierarchies for, um, for Dugan. So both Peterson and Dugan have some better understanding of hierarchies of competence than their critics do. do uh, 
I understand Peterson talks a lot about that, right? That primarily you would want to have hierarchies of competence, but they can degenerate into hierarchies of uh, power and oppression and so on, but that you don't therefore want to reject all hierarchies. That's consistent with Dugan's view, but already we're in the domain. If we're talking about hierarchies of competence, there may also be uh, like Dugan has a video hierarchy of national heroes where now you're not just talking about all competent people being equivalent across the across all human activities. But for example, an extremely competent hockey player and an extremely competent poet or philosopher, they don't, they're not just at the top of their um, hierarchies. They themselves are, are stand in a hierarchical relationship to one another. Poets and philosophers rank higher on the hierarchy of human existence and the hierarchy of national heroes than sportsmen do, or than, than um, illustrators do, or than um, laborers do, you see? So it would be worth doing a more sophisticated analysis of Peterson's view of the individual and Dugan's view of um, the alternative to liberal individuality. But they both try to bring in some depth and some dimension to what it is to be human that was lacking in the previously uh, predominant alternatives. Right, right. And... um you know, Peterson talks about the the logos, right, and the spoken word, and uh, the Stoics, who I'm more familiar with, uh, you know, really emphasize on the the importance of aligning yourself with logos. And Dugan talks about something called uh, the dark logos. And uh, when I was researching this, uh, when I was researching Dugan for this conversation, I came across this quote that kind of blew my mind. And uh, I'm going to read it, and I want you to comment on it. Uh, so here's here's Dugan. Chaos can think. We should ask her how she does this. We have asked Logos. Now it is now it is a turn of chaos. We must learn to think with chaos and within the chaos. To make an appeal to chaos is the only way to save Logos. Logos needs a savior. It cannot save itself. End quote. So I was like, whoa, <laughs> what's going on here? Um, could you talk about that? Yeah. So the good news is that some of Dugan's analysis of uh, Logos and Chaos is starting to become available in English. I've done some translations that are going to be published by Arctos, I hope, in uh, the coming year. And Dugan has a series of lectures that he gave in English on uh, a book series he has that deals with this topic. So some of the information is starting to become available in English. But let me tell you a few of the basics. Dugan's view, which he began to develop um, in this book in search uh, of the dark logos is that we're most familiar with the history of philosophy that is Apollonian, that sees logos as light, truth, reason, order, coherence, uh, conquering darkness, confusion, chaos, disorder, and all the rest of it. But through his readings and through his personal experiences, which at times uh, to the extent to which I've read about them, seem to be borderline uh, mystical experiences or experiences of a, of an initiatory sort, um, like initiation into mysteries untold. Uh, those types of experiences and that type of reading showed him that there is an alternative to the Apollonian model of uh, reason, truth, understanding, and light that, for example, is familiar to mystical literature where you talk about the darkness as being more fundamental than the light 
the light as emerging from the darkness and the and some a mystic who's on his way to um to an encounter with the divine would do well to go one step beyond uh the light if he ever gets to that point into the darkness so the dark logos for for dugan is an alternate model to the relationship between the human soul and the fundamentals of uh fundamentals of reality that is alternate to apollonian model and there he begins to identify it at, with dionysus with dionysian way of thinking now he calls uh in search of the dark logos the precursor to a multi-volume set that followed called no o machia no o like nous and machia like battle or war no machia is the battle of the intellects or the war of the intellects um and in that work, especially in the first few volumes, he sets out a model of three logoi. So if in Search of the Dark Logos, he was beginning to oppose a Dionysian Logos to an Apollonian one, by the beginning of the Nomachia series, he had identified a third Logos, Sibel uh, or Kibel. I'm not sure how to pronounce it, C-Y-B-E-L-E. And... Each one of these uh, three logoi has its own understanding of what chaos is, its own understanding of the relationship between chaos and logos. So if you are somebody who sees chaos as um, the collapse of order, order is primary and chaos is the collapse of order, it would seem weird or strange to talk about looking to chaos for salvation or to look to chaos as a savior for logos or however he put it in the passage you read. But in terms of a Dionysian or a mystical model or alternative to the Apollonian view, chaos is the matrix from which order arises. It's not, it's not what follows the dissolution of order. It's what precedes and includes the constitution of order. So chaos is for him a multivalent term because it changes its meaning depending on which logos system you're talking about, as, of course, does the word logos itself. So this is a very rich part of his thought that I just uh, can't wait really to have those books translated. I may <laughs> undertake to translate them myself. It helps, as I said, that some of it is beginning to um, show up in English. But he is very much um, a Dionysian thinker, but one who has mapped out the started to map out some of the relevant alternatives. And in this series, Noamachia, the first few volumes, as I say, do the theoretical work of laying out what he thinks the uh, these three logoi are, how they operate, what their subdivisions are, and so on. And the remaining volumes are a noetic and logoic, so to speak, analysis of various civilizations and which of these logoi predominate in which proportions in various civilizations. So to my mind, Anybody who talks about diversity, and for them, diversity means what? It means we must have more transgender, uh, must have more um, sexual minorities and freely identified uh, people, you know, in our classrooms learning about the evils of capitalism or have, you know, evils of uh, the white male patriarchy and of Zionists and of whoever else. If that's what diversity to them means, philosophically speaking, a intellectually defensible diversity, in my view, is very much uh, laid out here in its foundations in Dugan's Noamachia set. It takes seriously the idea of logos and chaos. It pluralizes them, but not arbitrarily. It expands them horizontally and vertically into a civilizational analysis. It's pretty well thought out and serious stuff. So I've always been 
disappointed at intellectual uh, people who present themselves as intellectuals, often university professors and other uh, um, public intellectuals who aren't willing to scratch beneath the surface on Dugan. Because even if you reject the craziest things that he's said, whatever you think they are, you don't like that he was on Alex Jones. You don't like what he said about Ukrainians. You wish he'd never spoken to Ahmadinejad. And let the uh, you know the end of the world be the last words that you ever hear from his lips. Fine. But when you start talking about extending this um, multi-logos analysis, understanding of the relationship between logos and chaos, that's richer from what I can tell. I mean, I did read part, parts of uh, Peterson's first book. And although very interesting, you can extend that type of analysis so much further philosophically. I don't know whether he's done so. He's got 100 million hours of YouTube videos I can't claim to be familiar with. But what I've just described to you um, about how Dugan sees logos and its relationship to chaos and to civilization is worth pursuing, I think, and is defensible as a version of uh theoretical political diversity that's much more serious than our ersatz um diversity today in and out right, of the classroom right. it's funny that you mentioned that because you know i was talking to a few of my friends and when I, I mentioned dugan and i just discovered dugan like in the summer a couple of months ago when i was um uh kind of researching about orthodox christianity uh which is uh what i was baptized uh, in and then he came on my radar somehow um but when I was talking to him with some of uh, my more intellectually minded friends, they just like hand wavingly dismissed him and, and called him like, oh, he's akin to Bin Laden or Al Qaeda or something like that. Um, and I thought that was a pretty uh, uh, superficial uh, and uncharitable kind of dismissal of him because even if he's, the guy is crazy, uh, you have to acknowledge his influence uh, on the world stage, which is what I, I, I want to maybe if we have time, we can get into. But yeah, can I just say yeah, something yeah. about that briefly? So the fourth political theory, the first book that I translated, I started in 2011, came out in 2012. It has a chapter on um, varieties of conservatism. So at the time, before I knew that, you had people like your friends who say, well, isn't he basically just like Bin Laden? As I was going through that chapter on varieties of conservatism, he he distinguishes, for example, like you know Bill Crystal style conservatism from uh, German revolutionary conservatism, from fundamentalist fundamentalism of a bin Laden kind and a number of other alternatives as well. And then he does the same thing for the, for the, for leftist thought. And when I read that at the time, I thought, Oh wow, look at this. Remember, I didn't have the many years of experience seeing how people react to him. I was approaching him then, um, without a lot of, uh, let's say a lot of noise about his reputation. I was just me, basically me and his books, you know? So when I did that chapter, I saw, Look, he's giving a pretty rich, a much richer vocabulary about the about political life, just even about conservatism. Look, he's already spelled out five or six different kinds of conservatism and how they relate to time. Like, are they just about restoring the glorious past or do they see that the future woes were already contained in seed form in the past? Are they fundamentalist in a bin Laden type or are they neoconservative like uh, Bill Kristol style analysis? So even then, you could see his analysis was drawing distinctions that give us a richer vocabulary. And if someone had read only those five pages, it would be impossible to say, oh, he's just, uh, he's just a religious fundamentalist. Because once you've seen how he conducts his analysis, you see that he's far beyond belonging to just one of these categories because he must be above them in order to give such an account of them, an account of the alternatives. 
So he has a much greater breadth than the people who try to put him into a single slot. But that tells you about the breadth of those yeah, people, yeah, yeah. unfortunately. So oftentimes there's something to be gained in enriching our political vocabulary. And my thoughts then, still now to an extent, are that he's very useful in helping us to hmm. do that. So so going back to the the dark logos and the different kind of understandings of logos and then trying to map that over to the, his fourth political theory um, and sort of this multipolar world that he sees, this world order, um, can you can you kind of speak on that, this multipolar world order and how he envisions it? I can say a little bit about it. It won't be exhaustive, but um, it, so he rejects unipolarity, an America-dominated world. That's the basic um, basic axiom. And he's got various models about what uh, what multipolarity should be. Who are the main poles of a multipolar world? Like, what defines a pole? Is it a is it a country? Is it a people? So he's got has an analysis of that um, where he thinks that he posits, and I should say too, he's always willing to hedge a little bit and say, this may not be the last word on this, but since we're starting to think along these lines, let me suggest what I think is most important. That's usually his approach. So for multipolarity, he says the civilization, we can identify civilizations as poles. So we have to begin with the recognition of a plurality of civilizations and a defensible account of what a civilization is. So he has that. He develops that in his writings. So multipolarity means a plurality of civilizations, each with its own um, large space, each with its own, geopolitically speaking, large space. So it's not a small nationalism of um, countries that are not in blocks. It's a different, um, a different model, civilizational and block, regional block model. Um, he has at various times articulated from the perspective of Russia's civilizational interests, which other civilizations and blocks and countries and movements, um, he thinks makes sense to ally with and why and why not. And a simpler presentation of his ideas is just the division between land powers and sea powers, which he takes from, uh, classical geopolitics and from Schmidt and from others and elaborates into an understanding of the conflict, fundamental conflict ranging across a variety of parameters between the um, United States as a global force and Russia as a global force, um, and how that plays out in terms of both minor things like, I mean, not minor, but let's say uh, geopolitical things like struggles over pipelines and over various movements, uh, domestic and international, like what some of you may know that he's very much up in arms uh, with the protesters against Macron right now. That's an example of that. And also what it means at the more fundamental philosophical, theoretical level, religious level even, about how to identify the human being and his relationship to uh, God and so on. So multipolarity, the way that I see it is that, um, I mean, I think this is a fair paraphrase of Dugan. That's what I mean when I say it. this is how I see it, is that if you're going to recognize that human being is a blossoming complexity and not just a single reality, that you can't just identify the human being as a class, for example, but that there are a variety of potential interpretations stemming from uh, the kind of beings that we are, then a true diversity would have that reflected not just domestically, when we talk about diversity and we say we need to have more people that are different from us, but there must also be an, 
that international multipolarity is a reflection of true human diversity because true human diversity can't be ideologically self-same. So that means that ge geopolitical blocks also can't be ideologically self-same. So his analysis of this phenomenon of multipolarity, again, ranges across a variety of level levels. A lot of, it's, a lot of the geopolitical side of it is available in English. Philosophical side is just starting to, uh, starting to show up. Um, but it's pretty, it's, uh, when people call him dangerous, uh, when people in the West call him dangerous, I think that his agitation for multipolarity must play a big part of that much less, I mean, much more so than his, uh, speculations on Heidegger, because there are far fewer Heidegger experts roving around than there are people who can see that, uh, provoking a movement against the powers that be is dangerous. Well, Dugan is very much about building relationships with um, parties in other countries and with intellectuals and activists in other blocs to oppose at all of its pressure points um, the liberal world order as he sees it. So right now that fight is in um, France and yesterday it was somewhere else and tomorrow it will be somewhere else. Uh, and all of the actions he takes in those playing fields and all of the actions that he promotes in those um, theaters of war I would say are in the name, not just of Russia and its national interests, but in the name of, uh, multipolarity. Right. Right. And, um, when I was, um, researching him for the culture war 2.0 white paper, um, and, and mainly his, the foundations of geopolitics, uh, and some of the stuff that he was recommending, the, the soft power attacks against America, you know, echoed what what happened with the 2016 Russian interference in the the elections, American elections. Um, so, do you do you know much about that? About like uh, his role there or his philosophical influence as concerns the 2016 and uh, in, in concerns the Russian potential Russian interference in the U.S. politics. Um. In foundations of geopolitics, the potential fault lines in the American body politic that can be exploited by Russian interference are discussed, but not at length. They do appear. So passages that people might find about the foundations of geopolitics online, um, those passages are not fabricated, but they are a very small proportion of that book. And I wrote on michaelmillerman.ca on my blog, uh, I translated, I don't think it had been available before, I couldn't find it when I searched, uh, the comprehensive table of contents, the foundations of geopolitics. I didn't translate the whole book, but if you look at the full table of contents, you can see that the analysis of America and the potential exploitation of its weaknesses, of its weaknesses is comparatively small. Um, it's not enough to deduce his full-fledged interference in American political life on the basis of foundations of geopolitics, in my view. I can't speculate further. I don't have knowledge about what uh, he or his circles may or may not have done uh, or may or may not be doing. But the theoretical model about the relationship between Russia and the United States is not uh, hidden. It's not secret. You see... There's a relationship of enmity, and it certainly would make sense, uh, given that relationship of enmity, to try to do damage to your enemy. Um, but again, I couldn't say in any level of 
like I basically don't know. So I know more about the, what's spelled out theoretically than what's been implemented practically. Uh, I do wish one of the reasons I translated the introduction to Foundations of Geopolitics is because I did want to present when people talk about that book, I want it to be with an understanding of um, what else is in it, you know, besides the one or two passages that circulate online about exploiting like race yeah, riots yeah. and all the rest of it. Of course, of course, of course, those are important, uh, but so is everything else. So, so we're at the hour mark, and I kind of wanted to ask you two two questions one uh, one personal and one one a little bit superficial. Uh, the personal one is, uh, what's at the edge of your thinking right now? It doesn't have to be in regards to Dugan, but in in anything intellectual, what's at the edge of your thinking? Two things. If I find the time, there are two things that I would be reading about uh, more right now. So the first is uh, a continuation of my interest in, mis- in mysticism, mystical anthropology, uh, and mystical um, political theology. And that would be um, Henri Corbin. He's uh, both a Heidegger scholar and a scholar of um, Islamic mysticism. Uh, I learned about him through Dugan, but his value is independent of Dugan. And just before I finished my uh, my PhD, I was reading his work on the active imagination and one Islamic thinker, and it just touched me very closely and reconnected with a uh, old passion I have for mystical thought that wasn't satisfied during my university life. So, and even right now, the, I mean, I was reading much more as a graduate student than I'm reading now, but the book I'm finishing is called The Eternal in uh, in Russian Philosophy. So that religious mysticism and it's human and political dimension is one area that continues to be of primary interest for me. And the other one, unrelated, I would say, to to political life as we've discussed it so far, um, but related to things like the ethics of uh, artificial intelligence and to the future of, um, of computing technology and robotics would be Stephen Wolfram, um, a mathematician, a programmer, the designer of uh, Wolfram language, a programming language wrote a book called uh, A New Kind of Science about complex uh, and chaotic and random results that can be produced from uh, repeated iterations of a very simple program. Mm. So I read that many, many years ago and have rekindled an interest in it recently. So those would be the two things, actually, the fundamentals of computing, reading more about uh, Wolfram's New Kind of Science and religious, mystical anthropology and uh, and political theory on the other hand i'm not sure where and when and at which points uh they relate or come into contact but those would be the two areas of my primary interest yeah and those strike me as rich explorations um okay so the superficial question is uh this is like a a geek out question who would you love to see uh, dugan debate with or have a conversation with i assume that right now the most interesting conversation that I can imagine him having about Young and about Heidegger, about individualism and so on. Would be, I think, a conversation with Peterson would be a, would be interesting, uh, because there are enough points of shared interest, it seems like to me, but enough points of uh, misunderstanding and of opposition, um, and they're both. So I thought my former supervisor Ronald Beener, who's anti Dugan, and uh, wrote Dangerous Minds, uh, Nietzsche, Heidegger, and the Return of the Far Right. But, you know, I don't think that as much as I have some positive things to say about Beaner, I don't think he's up to the level of having a serious discussion with Dugan about the fundamentals. Whereas 
I think that uh, conversation between Dugan and Peterson would be well worth uh, having. And it can be artificially staged to an extent, but it would be much more interesting to have it right, happen, right. actually. And then there's, uh, there's a, I guess I should address it. There's this conspiracy theory floating around with this connection between Peterson, yourself, and then Dugan. Uh, would you like to address that or disabuse it if, if it needs to be disabused? People on Twitter and online love to draw connections, try to find them where they may or may not exist. So the theory was that Peterson writes about Heidegger. He is at the University of Toronto. I write about Heidegger. I'm at the University of Toronto. I write about Dugan, who writes about Heidegger. Therefore, Peterson is not Spol, a national Bolshevist supporter of Russian fascism. Uh, the theory is interesting, but far-fetched. It's inaccurate. I have never spoken with Peterson about Dugan or anything else. Uh, not that I would not that I would mind doing that. Um, so there's no connection. Peterson has mentioned Dugan in a lecture before, but I don't know what he's read of his, uh, what he hasn't read, what he thinks beyond what he might have said in the lecture. And I certainly have had no uh, direct influence on his, as far as I know, anyways. I've never spoken to him about Dugan. I have no relationship uh to him in that way so it's an interesting theory but unfortunately there's no okay. evidence for it um so yeah so this was have been a very fascinating conversation and uh and again i'm very uh, new to dugan but i i definitely want to do uh an exploration on on specifically his, his understanding of logos because i didn't know that what you just what you mentioned earlier and that's that's uh, strikes me as a very rich material. So um, is there anything uh, you want to leave uh, the audience with where they can find you, what you're doing, what you're up to? Sure. So I make uh, YouTube videos on political theory from time to time that you can find at millermantalks.ca. Some of my academic writings, which include a lot on uh, Dugan and the list of my translations are at my site, michaelmillerman.ca. And you can follow me on Twitter if you'd like at M underscore Millerman. And I'd be a great, great. And I recommend everyone um, check out uh, his videos on YouTube. Uh, I think they're pretty uh, well done and uh, very educational. So I encourage you to keep doing them as well. All right. Well, thanks for coming on, Michael. And until next time, keep exploring. Keep exploring.